Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Now, some of you, is the, before I read, you're going to say, hey, hang on for a second. Um, you finished in chapter 5. Why are you skipping chapter 6? Well, remember, we're studying the book of Revelation chronologically. And as you're going to see tonight, if we're going to study the book of Revelation chronologically, we have to go to chapter 7 next because something happens in chapter 7 that must precede what's going to happen in chapter 6 with the opening of the seals. And so hopefully that will become clear tonight as we take a look at this. And actually, we're going to look at not, all of, not only all of chapter 7, but also part of chapter 14 to get a real clear um, understanding of what's going on here. So let's start in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, and 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now we see that in verse 1, that the angels at the four corners of the earth are not allowed to allow the wind to blow on the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. We're going to deal with more in just a little bit on who the 144,000 are, but this wind is very important that we understand what it means. For years, as I studied scripture, I just thought it meant that the they weren't going to allow any wind itself to blow. I played a little bit of golf this afternoon, uh, actually this morning with my son because I hadn't been home very much, and so I'd already made an appointment with my son and said, hey, Tomorrow, a Monday morning, when I get back, we're going to play some golf. And buddy, it was hard today because of how much wind was blowing out there. And uh, I used to think that that's what this was talking about. But it actually, like I've been trying to teach you, and hopefully I'll show you some more today. If you had read the Old Testament, and if you knew what the Old Testament had said, and you read then the, then the book of Revelation, most of the stuff we're confused about would become very, very clear because you would say, well, I know what that is. I know what these four angels are. I know what the wind stands for because we've already seen it before. So go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you a couple of places where actually these four angels and the winds from the four corners of the earth actually have already been described. And let me just give you a little heads up. The wind refers to judgment and the winds of judgment. In Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, do you see it? The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked as its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and it made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which before, before which the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, we're not going to take the time tonight to break down this prophecy and this vision that Daniel was given. We will come back to it later in the study, because it's going to be very, very important as we look in the book of Revelation at the Antichrist and this last kingdom and all this, and this prophecy will be a lot clearer at that time. But... Daniel sees in his vision that there were the, as we see back here again in verse 2, uh, I saw in my vision in the night, 
The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 49, and maybe this will help us even a little bit more to see what these four winds of heaven represent and are. Jeremiah 49, look at verses 34 through 38. If some of you have little headings in your Bibles, you'll see that some of them will say judgment on Elam. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 34, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah king of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam, do you see it? The four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. So again, we see that these four winds of heaven are descriptive of judgment. That actually, and when God brings his judgment on nations and on this planet, he uses the angels to do this. And so we see... well. If you go to Hosea, real quick, let me show you one more place, and then, then I'll explain it to you. Go to Hosea chapter 13. If you were to read verses 1 through 15, it'll give you a fuller picture, but I'm just going to read to you just, just verse 15. Hosea chapter 13, look at just verse 15. God says, though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So back in Revelation, when John saw that the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, if you read that and you had known Jeremiah 49 or Daniel 7 or Hosea 13, you would understand that these angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth are holding back what? Judgment and the devastation and, and that's going to occur when that happens. Again, do you see how clear Revelation becomes if you actually see what's written in the Old Testament? It's actually been there all along. I, you're going to get more and more excited, hopefully, as we go through this study, because I'm going to show you that most everything here in the book of Revelation was already written in the Old Testament. All Revelation does is put it together for us. But the angels were told, you guys can't bring your judgment and your devastation on the earth. You're not allowed to harm any tree or anything on the earth until what? The 144,000 are sealed. And so that's why we're in chapter 7. Because if you go back and look later on at chapter 6, when, when Jesus begins to open the seals of the scroll, things start to happen on the earth. People are going to start to kill each other. There's going to be famine, pestilence, and the earth's topography is going to be totally changed during that time period of the tribulation. But the angels aren't allowed to even begin to bring their judgment until after these 144,000 are sealed by God. And now people have, one man asked me last night afterwards, he said, what does it mean to have their name, God's name on their foreheads? Well, the best way I can explain it to you is this. God marked them as his. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but so are you. Now, when Jesus walked on the earth, he was not only man, he was also God, right? So as he walked around, the humans could only see physical Jesus. They didn't understand that he was God. But there's a story we see in the Gospel of Mark that he walked to, up to this man who had a legion of demons inside of him. What did the demons say when they saw Jesus? They said, we know who you are, son of the most high God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? How come they knew who he was? Because the demons can see the physical realm and the spiritual realm. As Jesus walked around on this earth, he wasn't just a physical man. He was also God himself in the spiritual realm. The angels and the demons could see that he was God. And that's why they were afraid. Folks, let me ask you a question. When you got saved, what did God do with his spirit? He put it inside of you. Folks, let me just help you out for a second. If you're a child of God through Jesus Christ, you are right now walking around just like Jesus on this earth. Now again, you and I might only see the physical, but the demons and the angels see that 
his name's on your forehead, if you will. You've been marked as his. Satan can do nothing to you unless God allows it. Just like those demons went, whoa, we know who you are. When you walk around and I walk around, because Jesus himself is living within us, God himself is within me, the demons, they don't touch me unless my father allows it. You see the whole conversation in Job, don't you? In chapter 1 and chapter 2, where the angels appear before God, and Satan also came because he had to check in. And God says, have you noticed Job? And he says, yeah, but you won't let me touch him. And God set the parameters. Have you ever thought about in the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, the model that Jesus gives us, the template for prayer, as he teaches us to pray to our Father who art in heaven, he then says, lead us not into temptation. Well, James chapter 1, verse 13 is very clear that God doesn't tempt anyone. Then why is Jesus teaching us to pray to the Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one? He's showing us in the model for prayer, the original prayer that Jesus taught us how to know how to pray. He says, your Father controls whether or not Satan is allowed to mess with you. That's why Jesus said in Luke 22 to Peter, Satan has asked, actually he said to all of them, he said, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat. What was Satan doing asking? If you're a child of God, his name's on your forehead. You may not see it. I may not see it. But the spiritual realm does. And if anything is happening to you, well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 puts it this way. No temptation has seized you, but such is common to man. And what? God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, he'll provide a way to escape. Do you understand that if Satan is even tempting you, he had to go to your heavenly father's desk, make a re- put in a requisition form, and the father then had to stamp it approved or not approved, or he'd set the parameters and then stamp it approved? Folks, stop giving Satan more authority in your life than he has And when Satan comes at you, and when Satan's allowed to take a 56-year-old with pancreatic cancer, we Christians have to say, this didn't happen outside my father's knowledge. He has a reason. By the way, John the Baptist was told everything's right on schedule, wasn't he, when he said, are you the one or should we look for another? Does anybody know what happens to John the Baptist next? He gets his head cut off. Everything's right on schedule. We're going to have to trust that God knows what he's doing and he's proven who he is and that he's good, even in those times when it doesn't make sense. But these 144,000 are now sealed and protected by God. And you're going to see later on in the study, as we get into later sections, when the stuff starts to happen, are the rest of the Christians protected during the tribulation period? No, they're not. Actually, what we have is a gift that the Jews are going to experience during the millennial kingdom. We Gentiles during this church age have been given promises that God made Israel that they're going to be fulfilled one day. And one of those promises is that he told them in Ezekiel 28, I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I'm going to move you to follow my decrees. Paul says, let me tell you a mystery. It's Christ in you. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not indwell anyone. He would come upon them in power, but he would leave if they walked in disobedience. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We Christians don't need to worry about that because the Bible's so clear that when he puts his Spirit within us, he comes to dwell within us forever, and we're sealed by the Spirit of God. That's that word again, isn't it? Doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Folks, these 144,000 have the Spirit of God come to indwell them, and they are protected, and they are going to be sent out. I'm running ahead of myself, but I'll show you this in a little bit. They're going to be sent out as witnesses during the tribulation period, and they're protected by God from all the things that are going to happen The rest of the Christians that come to faith during the tribulation period don't get the indwelling Holy Spirit like we do. And they're going to be killed, most all of them, for their faith. That's why you're going to see later on the souls under the altar saying, how long until you avenge our blood? And they're told to wait a little longer until the rest of their brothers are going to be killed in the same way. But the angels who are in charge of this judgment are told, do not let the wind blow. The judgment come. Don't harm the earth or anything on it until I've sealed these 144,000. 
And God put his name on their foreheads. And so let's spend some time now dealing with who are the 144,000. Now, there's been much false teaching about these individuals over the years. And even people who don't know the Bible or have never even read it often speak of the 144,000. I remember many a time as I've talked to people out on, on the street or on a golf course or wherever it is that I run into people and they find out I'm a Christian and I'm a preacher and everything. And if I even talk about heaven, they'll always say, oh, the 144,000. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, unfortunately, are a big reason why people say that kind of stuff. Because they've been going knocking on everybody's door, talking about the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that only 144,000 actually get to go to heaven. The rest who become Jehovah's Witnesses will live on a renewed earth forever. Now, I'm going to show you tonight from Scripture, there's a problem with that. It's a major problem with that, and it's not just from what we're going to show you about our study about who the 144,000 really are. Listen to what they teach. They teach that the 144,000 are the only ones who get to be in heaven with God for eternity, and then for the rest of eternity, the others, not the 144,000, 144,000, they're in, in heaven with God. The rest of the believers are on this renewed earth, all right? I mean, they'll even have that pamphlet they'll hand you that shows the lion of the lamb, and they, they misunderstand the millennial kingdom versus the eternal state. But turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 21, and let me show you something that hopefully the Lord can use if someone were to knock on your door and God would let you talk to them, because sometimes God says, just don't even answer. In Revelation 21, look at what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now hang on for a second. Look closely. In this picture that John sees after the tribulation period, after the millennial kingdom, at the very end of the, what we call the eternal state, when the new heaven and the new earth are created, he sees coming out of heaven this amazing city, which you're going to see is amazingly big. And it comes down out of heaven to the earth. And then John says, now God comes to dwell with man. Is there going to be for eternity where God is and then where the rest of us are? No. God's going to be on this new earth with us forever and ever and ever. It's going to be an amazing thing. So if anybody tells you that there's a special place in heaven for eternity with God, and then the rest get to be on the earth. They haven't read their Bibles because there's no distinction anymore. God himself comes and lives with us on the earth forever and ever and ever. And that's kind of cool. But there's also another problem. It's not really found in the Bible, but I can tell you about it right now. They've already handed out all the tickets. <laughs> Seriously, if you wanted to be one of the 144,000, you can't. That's why they're telling everybody you can live on this renewed earth. You see, the Jehovah's Witnesses theology has been off in a lot of things, and they thought they knew when the return of Jesus was going to be and all this stuff was going to happen. And so in their haste, they started promising people you're one of the 144,000 many years ago, and they've already given out all this ticket stubs. And if you wanted to be one of the 144,000 according to their theology, you couldn't because they've already passed out all those tickets. Good news is... You don't even really want to be one of the 144,000, and actually, scripturally, most of us can't be the part of the 144,000. You know why? Look again at Revelation 7 as we start to look at their description. Who are they really according to the Bible? Again, build your doctrine from the scriptures. Know the word, and it'll keep you from false teaching. First off, who are they? They're Jews. It's very, very clear. Not only is it clear, God goes out of his way to show us 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's very, very clear. These 144,000 are 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. They're Jews. I'm not a Jew. 
I can't be a part of the 144,000. And if you're not a Jew, you can't be a part of the 144,000. Plus, these people, as awesome as they are, are going to be living during the tribulation period. You know what? I kind of like being the part of the church. I like my assignment. It's good. But now some of you who have been studying Scripture for years might have noticed something that many other people might have never noticed. If you compare this list of the 12 tribes, you're going to notice that this list is different from previous lists of the 12 tribes. You're going to notice that the tribe of Dan is missing from this list, and it's been replaced with the tribe of Joseph. Well, why is the tribe of Dan omitted and replaced with Joseph? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. It's a study for another day. I've done the study. I actually, as I was preparing this lesson, prayed through whether or not I was supposed to take you down that road and deal with it. Let me just tell you, I believe that the Bible does give us some scriptural clues as to why Dan is not here and it's been replaced with Joseph. I think in my study, I've come to a place where I think I can feel confident that I have a rough idea as to why. But the answer would take two hours. I'm not kidding you. To lay it all out and explain it to you and give you my hypothesis from the scriptural clues would take us two hours and you would, we would lose most everybody here, including me. Why can't we just say God has a reason and it will be made known when it's time? Like I said, if you even come after me and say, Jim, just give me your short answer. There is none. There is no short answer. I would have to lay three layers of foundation scripturally to be able to even give you the answer. So just trust me on this. You're glad that I'm not telling you. Because everybody's sitting there going, man, Jim, show us. By the time I finished, you would say, I so wish I hadn't told him to show me. And I'm not sure it's worth the issue. I'm not, you remember how I told you it's okay to chase rabbits as long as you can catch them? And if you catch them, they taste good? I'm not sure this rabbit's worth chasing, to be honest with you, folks. I've done the hours and hours of study. I'm not sitting here going, whoa, look what I found. It's not that big of a deal. There's a reason, and it'll become clear one day. I don't think it makes a difference to us why or why not. Can you trust me on that one? And if you have an issue with it, it's called Google. <laughs> oh, and by the way, as you click on Google, there's a lot of wackos out there, too. And you're going to spend hours just weeding through the wackos as to why. If you want to have fun, you say, weed whacking? Is that what you said? That's pretty good. I like that. Weed whack the wackos. But here's the deal. God has a reason, but he's definitely in giving us the different names of the tribes and even having a difference between Dan and Joseph. He's showing us something here. They're Jews. Plain and simple, they're Jews. But what else? Well, the Bible shows us here in, in chapter 7 that they're also God's servants. They're described not only as Jews, but also his servants. You can see it right there. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All right, so what is their role then? If they're servants, what is their role? I think a clue is in chapter 7 in the next verses and also in the book of Zephaniah. I'll be honest with you, what I'm about to show you in Zephaniah, I'm pretty excited about. Because I'd never really seen this before until I'd done my study. And I think when you put together the rest of chapter 7 with Zephaniah, their role becomes very, very clear. Go with me to chapter 7 and look at verses 9 through 17. In verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I love John's humility. He doesn't say, Well, from my research, he says, Sir, you know. I love that. 
He's been asked by this elder, who are these people clothed in white? And John says, sir, you know. And then the elder said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Now, if you know your Bibles and what's about to happen during the tribulation period, you'll know that that's one of the things that's going to happen. For years, everybody keeps talking about global warming. And I say, just wait. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, are these two groups, the 144,000 and these thousands upon thousands from every people, tribe, and nation, are they connected? I think they are. And their connection, I think, is found in Zephaniah chapter 3. Go with me to Zephaniah chapter 3 and look at verses 9 through 13. Now, again, Zephaniah is one of the harder books to find for some people. But many people have no trouble finding Zechariah in the, in the end of the Old Testament. If you go to Zechariah and then back up, you'll see Haggai is right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. So most people have no trouble finding Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah and then just keep turning left and you'll find Zephaniah Haggai is a little, little book between them. In Zephaniah chapter 3, listen to verses 9 through 13. Look closely at what it says here. And again, your headings give you a little help there. Mine says the conversion of the nations. It says, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, and look, look how these worshipers are described, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now stick with me here, because I have a little bit more insight possibly than some of you might have, because I know where we're going in our study. And something was said here that if you knew about Revelation 14, you would go, "Woo! they just quoted Revelation 14. Or Revelation 14 quoted something here. So first off, we see that at that time, God is going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, and he's going to use the daughter, or the, the, these nations are called the daughter of his dispersed ones. In other words, if there's a daughter of something, they came out of them, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So there's a group called his dispersed ones, which are going to be used to have the nations come together. And then those, these dispersed ones, in verse 13, are described as those who are left in Israel... They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And then it says they're going to graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Any idea if this is the 144,000 that are being talked about here as the dispersed ones? Any idea why none shall make them afraid? You got it. They're sealed. And all the stuff that happens on the earth will have no effect on them. Because God has said, I've set the parameters, you won't be affected by 144,000, you're sealed and protected. And you're going to see later on that even believers and everybody on the earth, the only ones that aren't harmed by what happens are those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And don't just assume that means every believer during the tribulation, because it doesn't. Even believers during the tribulation won't be spared of what's going to happen. But the 144,000 will be. And that's why they can lie down and none make them afraid. But let's go to Revelation chapter 14. Keep a finger in Zephaniah 3, though. And let me show you, there's a further description of uh, the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. In Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 1, we see another description of them. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We know who they are now because we've seen them introduced in, verse, in chapter 7. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been, these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Did, did anybody catch it? How are they described here? In their mouth no lie was found. You go back to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And all of a sudden, as the Spirit of God helps you see it, you'll realize the 144,000 are the same group that were prophesied about in Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah 3 said that in that time, in the last days, God's going to use, left in Israel, some of his servants who are going to be pure, and they're going to be no lie in their mouth, and they're going to be his dispersed ones, and they're going to be used to bring the nations to Jesus. You're going to see that in just a second, that they're all men. We're going to get to that ahead of time, but that's good. You're, you're with me. So do you understand so far where we are? The 144,000 are Jewish, and you're going to see in a second they're men, but they're Jewish servants of God who are dispersed, sealed and protected by God at the beginning of the tribulation, before the seals are opened, to be his witnesses all over the globe to bring, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, all these people from all these different nations to come together, and they're the ones who come out of the great tribulation, out of that time the Bible describes as Jacob's trouble, and they're being coming to faith because of the witness of these Jewish men. Now, let's, let's deal with that fact that they're men. All right? It appears that the 104,000 are Jewish witnesses that are sent to all the earth during the tribulation period as witnesses for Jesus. Remember, the church has already been raptured. They're going to be his main witnesses all over the globe. You're going to see later on, he's not only going to have the 144,000 all over the whole earth as his witnesses during that time, he's also going to have two very powerful ones in Jerusalem for a three and a half year period, witnessing to Israel and to anybody that tries to do anything to him during that time period. God's going to get his stuff done. But they are virgins and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And then they're described as virgins in such a way that it says that they have not defiled themselves with women. Now, we got to stop. And this first off shows us that they're, that they're males, but I want to deal with this. They haven't defiled themselves with women. Because again, I want to teach you that in order to build the correct theology, you need to use the whole of Scripture to build your doctrine. There are too many people that can take a verse here and a verse there and make you believe stuff that doesn't match up with the rest of the book. If you are married, are, have you defiled yourself with a woman? Guys? Well, how do you know? Because it says here that they're virgins and they haven't defiled themselves with a woman. See why you need to know what your Bible says? Because too many of us would say, well, I think that God, well, careful. There's a lot of people out there teaching what they think. Let's let the Bible show us why this is an awesome thing, but not something that you can use as a verse to describe everyone. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, look at verse 4. God says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here the Bible says that marriage is a good thing. Let marriage be kept in, or held in honor by all. Who, by the way, who is the one who created marriage? God did. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. And he created Eve as, her, as his helpmeet. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply and make a lot of babies and fill the earth. It's not a bad thing to be married. But I'm going to show you from Scripture that there are some that have been chosen by God to not be married. And if God's plan for your life is that you not be married for his purposes, and you do... You'll have defiled yourself because you've gone against God's plan for your life. Is being married bad? No. Oh, by the way, married people, if you have sexual relations outside of your husband-wife relationship, the Bible we just saw in Hebrews 13 says you're defiling yourself. Let the marriage bed be kept pure. 
That's an important thing as well, but a study for another day. So let's go and look at a cool passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that deals with this topic a little bit. It'll help bring some clarity. And on top of that, listen to the reason why Paul says what he says to the church in Corinth. Listen to what's driving Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, let's look at verses 25 through 35. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 35. My translation says the betrothed, that means those are engaged. Verse 25, Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed of the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Have you seen the two phrases he's used already? Because of our present distress, and because the appointed time has grown very short, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. thought sure a lady would say amen right at this point here. But one of you ladies would say, that's what they're supposed to be focusing on. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Thank you. There's somebody at least. There we go. Tuesday night, they blew it on both times. All right. So you, Mike was ready. All right. How to please their husbands. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Is Paul saying, wives, ignore your husbands now because the time is short? No. Is he saying, husbands, ignore your wives because the time is short? No. But he was saying, he goes, let me just give you something. It's not a command from the Lord, but it's something I believe that according to our day, and because of the role God's given me, and the fact that I'm a trustworthy source, let me just give you some encouragement. Because of our present distress, because it's obvious that the time is growing short, because of the days in which we live in, get focused on God. And for some of you, that might mean that you don't get married. Now, each one needs to know what the Spirit of God is telling. We, we, we could spend more time because Paul deals with this in more detail in this whole chapter. I'm one of those ones that he described as, it's better to marry than to burn. And what that means with the burn with lust. I'm one of those guys, I'm going to tell you, that all during my growing up years, I didn't get married until I was 25. But I wanted a girlfriend. And I'll be honest, even in my teenage years, whenever I did get a girlfriend, even though I brought her to church, I couldn't tell you what was going on in the church service. Because I was too busy sitting there going, do I hold her hand, do I not? Do I hold her hand, do I not? And she was all I thought about. And then God took me through an interesting journey. It was a three-year process. Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm a good-looking guy. (laughs) But I couldn't get a date for three years no matter how hard I tried. And this is actually during the time period where I was playing college basketball. I was easily 100 pounds less than I am now. Had the six-pack abs. I was an athlete, and I couldn't get a girlfriend. God took me through this process where he took that away to get me to the point that I would be devoted to him. And folks, I couldn't believe that those words came out of my mouth. But at the end of those three years, after that whole process, I literally said to the Lord, Lord, if it's your plan for me to be single the rest of my life, I accept it because I want to be fully devoted to you. And that was then not many couple months later that I met my wife, Becky, and he gave me the desire of my heart. But he had already so taught me that God's still number one. 
All through our first years of marriage, it's been a joke between my wife and I. When we'd go tell, tell each other we love each other, we'd say, I love you, you're number two. <laughs> and she'd look back and say, you're number two. Some days, number three. But, uh, um, but here's the deal. Look at what's driving Paul when he gives this command. What's driving Paul to say, you're not married? Consider not getting married at all so you can devote yourself to the Lord. Why is he doing that? Why is he writing that? That was a question. Because of the times that, and folks, it's now almost 2,000 years later. That's why at this time, during that time period we know of the tribulation, as the tribulation, which we know is a seven-year-long period, these are Jewish men that God has set apart for himself that if they were to get married during this time, they would be defiling themselves with women because his role for them at that time was to be used solely for the purpose of going out and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people would come to faith. And he had a special role for them at that time. Again, for each of you here, whether you're getting married or about to get married or just got married, don't feel bad. You know what the Lord's plan is for your life. But if you're single, don't let anybody tell you you're bad either because there are those that God has chosen to be such. Embrace it. Because he's got a plan for your life. And so in this situation, these Jewish men have been set apart by God, especially because of the time that they're in, to be fully devoted to him. Now, they're also described as first fruits. Now, we really need to take a look at this because that's kind of cool. And I got to move fast because I got preaching tonight and I'm not as far along as I wanted to be. Take a note and write these down later on. Romans 16, 5 and 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Romans 16, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Paul describes the first believers in each of those areas as the first fruits in Achaia or the first fruits in whatever area that they were. Okay, the term first fruits means they are the first ones in that time period that represent the rest that are just like them. Remember how the Bible described Jesus as the first fruits who have risen from the dead, or for those who have risen from the dead? Was, was Jesus the first one to rise from the dead? No. Lazarus rose from the dead. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The people whose bodies came up out of the ground during Jesus' resurrection, they rose from the dead. But the Bible describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. How come? He was the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus died again. Jairus' daughter did. Most likely those who got up and walked around can't have just gone to heaven because if Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead, never to die again, those people at the time of Jesus can't be. You see what I'm saying? So first fruits are those who are the first ones to experience something that everybody else that experiences that are representative of. Do you see it yet? If the believers at the beginning of the church age in each area were the first fruits, the church has to be gone during this time period for the believers of the 144,000 to be the first fruits. Because otherwise, they would just be the continuation of those who believe. Well, they're Jews. They're Jews being saved now. But the fact that the 144,000 sealed at the beginning of the tribulation are called the first fruits is further evidence that the church is not here. They're with the Lord, the 24 elders. We've seen that already. And the first ones saved during this time period are the 144,000. That's kind of cool. Let me just put it to you this way. The, first, the 144,000 are the first converts during the tribulation period. They are male Jews whose role as servants of God sends them all over the globe as protected witnesses for Christ. And because of their ministry, thousands upon thousands of peoples from all tribes and languages and nations will come to faith in Jesus. And as we'll see, most will be killed for their faith. Not the 144,000, but those who come to faith. What I want to do in the time we have left, and I'm going to do this fast, so you're going to need to take a pen out and write a lot of these passages down, because I'm actually giving you the Reader's Digest Cliff Notes version of this study. But I want to walk you quickly, starting in the book of Genesis through the fact that God's plan all along was that he would reveal himself through the nation of Israel to the world. Now, as you're about to see, he's told them this over and over and over. They didn't do the greatest job. 
But that doesn't mean he's done with them, and that's further evidence of the fact that the 144,000 Jews at the end of time are going to fulfill the role that God had for Israel. All right, so go with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God says to Abram in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now again, through all of this is a picture of Jesus himself because he comes from this nation and from Abraham and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed whether they receive it or not it's up to them but at the same time there's something else here that's deeper you're going to see it clear clarified as Jesus continues to reveal his plan to Abram and to the nation of Israel go to Genesis 18 look at verses 17 and 18 the Lord said shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Again, this is when he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, he's going to be a mighty nation, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him, and that's why God chooses to tell Abraham what he's about to do. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Look at verses 15 through 18. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. My eyes are getting a little blurry here, and the lighting's bad. I've got to find verse 15. There it is. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Thank you very much. That helped a lot, uh, turning the light there. So. Again, we've seen now three times God's telling Abraham here in this time, it's right after he's not been, he's been faithful to, to be willing to offer, fight, uh, offer as a sacrifice Isaac. But God says, because you've done this, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you that all through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, ultimately fully fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But as you're about to see, God had chosen to use his offspring as a blessing to the world, as a witness, or as you're about to see, as priests. Go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, look at verses 1 through 6. And again, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest, like I said, cliff notes of the Reader's Digest version. This study is a cool study if you were to ever try to do, go on this on your own. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is, all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He says, look... I want to use you as a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. The priest's job was to be a representative between the people and God. And he says, I'm going to use you as a kingdom of priests. You're going to be my representatives out in the whole world. Real quickly, go to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 21. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, 
Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, and I will gather you, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. He's talking to Israel. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus does the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, to the people whom I formed for myself, that they might what? Declare my praise. So he says to the nation of Israel, you, you have been chosen by me. You were formed by me. You are precious to me. You are to be my witnesses. You are to be my witnesses. You are to declare my praise. How'd they do? Not so good. F minus. We've got to be careful, though. Because if you remember, we church are described in a very similar way, are we not, in 1 Peter chapter 2? You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people that are to declare forth my praise. Did you catch that? The things that he told Israel he wanted to do through them, he's doing, hopefully, through us. See, it's easy for us to say, boy, Israel didn't do too good. How are we doing? Maybe that F minus might apply to us. Now, has he replaced Israel with the church? No, because if you keep reading, the Bible says that what he planned to start in Israel, that he put on hold because of their disobedience, and is using us for a time to make Israel jealous and also to be his witnesses and his light in the world, that at some point he's going to finish with us and go back and finish with Israel. Go to uh, Isaiah real, real quick, uh, verse 40, chapter 49, verse, actually we'll jump to chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 49, look at verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Why did, why did Israel say that, by the way? Why did Zion say, the Lord's forsaken me, the Lord's forgotten me? Because he brought his judgment on them, right? And they were scattered to Babylon and Assyria. They felt like God had forgotten them. Listen to what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. By the way, in, in Romans chapter 11, three times Paul says, is God done with Israel? And he says, no. Has God forsaken Israel? No. Have they fallen not to get back up? No. And in that whole section, he says that we just, for a time, Israel has experienced, he says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you a mystery. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then, after that church age, all Israel will be saved. The ones who survived the tribulation period, the end of it. And so it should not surprise us that the 144,000 after the church is gone at the beginning of the tribulation period are Jews. 
whom he is going to set apart for himself, seal with his spirit, and send them out into the globe to go do what he said he would do through them. And as you're going to see, I'm going to close tonight by just reading to you from Isaiah chapter 60. This will be how we wrap it up tonight. And I can't wait to read it to you. It is so cool because what you're going to see here is that ultimately, and we're hopefully if Jesus doesn't come get us before then, as we go through in this study of Revelation, you're going to see God's plan lay all out. But ultimately, after the tribulation period, there's going to be this millennial kingdom where where God is going to be worshipped, Jesus himself on the earth, and all the nations are going to come and bring their sacrifices to him there. But ultimately, listen to what's going to happen. Arise, chapter 60 of Isaiah 60. Shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. By the way, don't read the church into this. This is Israel. And your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord, all the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebath shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house." Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and their gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of nations." With their kings led in procession. For nation, the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, the, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. This violence shall no longer be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Let me ask you a question. Has this happened to Israel yet? By the way, what, what is the nation's attitude toward Israel right now? They hate them. Do they consider the city of Jerusalem God's holy city for the Jews? No. And the sad thing is, many Christian denominations are siding with the Palestinians to say that the Jews shouldn't even be in the land. Folks, my prayer for you is that you would become people who know the truth of the book. And that the Bible says God is not done and the prophecies will be fulfilled. These things must take place. But we're in this time period. We're still at the end of the church age where we are to be his witnesses, the holy nation, a chosen people that we may declare his praise. So I send you out tonight saying this. Keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Keep praying for politicians that understand the importance of Israel and that we would be their ally and not their enemy. Because the Bible's real clear. He will destroy and curse every nation that goes against them. And at the same time, 
understand that you've been given a role just as well. That we are to be his light. Oh, they may not accept it. They may reject it, but that doesn't mean we're not still to shine the light. Too many of us, unfortunately, have had this mindset that says, well, they don't listen, so I must not be very good at it. I'll let someone else do it. No, no, no. You're just supposed to shine your light. You're supposed to just let the witness go out. Whether they receive it or not, don't worry about that kind of stuff. Stop measuring whether or not you're getting conversions. Stop measuring about whether or not people respond. I don't even, you know what? I don't know how many people are here. And I don't know how many were here last time. And I don't know how many time before. And I don't care. You know why? Because we've often measured how we're doing by numbers. Jesus said, just go be my light. And so I want to challenge you. Just as much as Israel was and will be his light to the nations, we've been given that role for a season. Don't think we're better than them. I'm actually praying for God to hurry up and finish with Israel. But until then, I need to be faithful to what he's called me to do as well. And so, folks, thanks for coming. I'll see you in a couple of weeks because I'll be out of town next week. We'll see you in a couple of weeks and we'll begin in chapter six when we come back. We'll see you then.